0: in Vietnam, for obvious reasons, decolonization is viewed merely through the prism of the Vietnam War or the state building efforts, which makes sense because since 1955, Vietnam was very much preoccupied with wartime activities and then with the possible ways of rebuilding Vietnam after the war. But again, this is just one of among many Vietnams. There was no one Vietnam. I think there's there was a different Vietnam in the United States. There's a different Vietnam in in Eastern Europe. There's a different Vietnam in in Western Europe. There's a different Vietnam in Australia. There's a different Vietnam in North Vietnam and in South Vietnam. So these are the things that have to be taken into account when we talk about it. The Vietnam I am focusing on is the socialist Vietnam in relationship with Eastern Europe, particularly with Poland and to some extent with Hungary as well.
1: Welcome to Decolonization in Action, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonum and I'm broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. This podcast is co-hosted by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and all forms of social media. This is Season 2, Episode 10. And I spoke with Wen Wenwu, who is currently a postdoctoral fellow in the Global History Division in the History Department at the Freie University in Berlin. And she will start a new position as a postdoctoral fellow at the Research Center for the History of Transformation at the University of Vienna in October. Len earned her PhD from the European University Institute in Florence. She's currently working on a book manuscript that examines the intersection of pedagogy Everyday practices of care and radical bonds of loyalty in the formation of the dissident milieu around Jacek and Razna Kuran under state socialism in Warsaw, Poland. By investigating the wealth of activity that took place in the private realm, her manuscript brings into light complex political identities, critical pedagogies, and an embodied set of practices that unsettle the division between the public and the private. I'm joined with Tuk Nen Wen Wu. Thanks for having me. Your research is quite exciting and interesting insofar that you are looking at the intersections of Vietnamese migration, socialism, and diasporic experiences in Poland in the Cold War era. Can you tell me about how you began your research practice and what inspired you to conduct this work?
0: This is such a great question, Um, and it is also at the same time very hard one to answer, but my interests are rooted in my experience of growing up as a migrant, as a woman in Warsaw, and then moving abroad for my my studies and for my work. And as a result of these migrations that happened in my life, I was and I still am often asked the question, where are you from? Then instantly this question is being followed by another one, where are you really from? So putting aside all the obviously problematic aspects of these questions, uh, being exposed to them made me realize that something that is obvious to me and many people of color in Poland remains relatively unknown within Poland and beyond. So already doing my PhD, that was on a completely different topic, I decided that my second book project would be on the intertwined histories of Poland and Vietnam under late socialism, and I will look at those histories and these kind of entanglements through the prism of encounters and day-to-day interactions between Vietnamese students and the Polish society, so the Polish institutions, individuals, groups of students. Apart from the fact that it's a, you know, it's, it's a very little, little studied uh, still part of the history of the global Cold War, if you want, comes to my kind of personal need to um, to use Sarah Ahmed's word, if you want, a need to accommodate one's own history in a world that is not always accommodating. So this
1: is how it all started. You mentioned Sarah Ahmed. I think as a feminist, as someone who has been engaged in philosophy and diasporic studies, she's done some excellent work, uh, especially in recent years with work on feminism. What other theorists are influencing your research?
0: So there are many theories, uh, many, many traditions that shaped my outlook and it keeps on evolving because I keep, to, you know, I continue to grow intellectually with every with every new project I am engaging in and with every new move to a new country. Um, but I was trained in cultural studies, which is so visible in my work as a cultural historian, focusing on microhistory, but. So I cannot name names, I would say, but broadly speaking, I was very, and I am still being shaped. That's something that I carry with me as obviously feminism, black feminism, gender studies, feminist and gender history. And somewhere, if you want, um, closer to home, if you want, is this really fabulous studies on Eastern uh, European histories of Jewish people. So uh, Jewish history in Poland and the Russian empire, this has shaped me tremendously, this kind of minority position perspective.
1: I also want to return to how your personal history, migration patterns being from Poland, but also finding yourself living in different contexts, how your your place and home is always being questioned. This is something that I, as someone who is Black, Haitian and American have found, especially as moving through spaces in America and on the African continent and now here in Europe, there's a way in which we non-white origin have to explain ourselves, but then that in many ways also inspires the work that we do. Uh, To what extent do you find some convergences, commonalities with other non-white or what people often call people of color who have these experiences being born and raised in the global north but then finding that their positionality is questioned, their so-called objectivity is questioned. So interestingly, lately I just
0: read the book um, The Refugees by Vietnam Nguyen um, together with Lea uh, Borgering, with whom I have this uh, Vietnam, uh, Beyond Vietnam reading group at the FU in, uh, in the Global History Division. And this book, The Refugees, was... Uh, it was like an embodied moment of animation that was um, that kind of animated so many feelings in me and, and kind of thoughts that I think that became a basis for future knowledge about how to talk about these, these experiences across geographies, you know, mental la- landscapes and different traditions. Because he is American Vietnamese, as you probably all know, but he mm-hmm. comes his family comes from the south of Vietnam and my family comes from the north. And his story is, you know, based in California. And I'm, I, I grew up in Warsaw. But it was the first book that I've read that I could literally relate to almost every single character in that story, because I've never read a story that had only or mostly Vietnamese people who are second or third generation, in his case, refugees, or like me, migrants. And despite the differences that they have different, you know, the the language is somewhat different, the customs are different, and the history of arrival is completely different from mine. I could see myself in that story, and not just in terms of this kind of, you know, immediate um, politics of representation so it's not about this kind of superficial but extremely powerful uh, capacity to connect to someone on the surface but it was also about the same problems the same vocabularies the same um, effective inheritance that we have that come with violence of migration and arrival that kind of you know so strongly resonated with me and I was just mind blown I was just wow you know and, and I read lots of books in my life not to show off but I read quite a lot of novels and it's only then that I realize how nice it is to actually be able to connect to so many different stories and I even asked my friend Lea, how does it feel to be German white German and German and go to the books and all the books are about you and for her it must be very weird at the same time it seemed very normal and that's what that was, was her answer she, she didn't know what to answer basically apart from being you know very interested in it and kind of uh, together we kind of unpacked the sensation of reading the book by Yu Nguyen. so I highly recommend it to everyone actually
1: I absolutely love that book and it's powerful, especially for people who might be the children of or themselves a product of people who were displaced under war or dictatorship mm-hmm. or any kind, any yes. form of political strife, especially those from the global south. And I would say that, like you, the power of literature and finding oneself in literature can be so touching. And I have a similar experience with reading Breath Eyes Memory uh, mm-hmm. by Edward Strandedcott, a Haitian writer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who is prolific in describing that migration history for the Haitian diaspora i agree that when you see that those words and you can see yourself the food the smells the feeling yeah. that it's powerful You sent me a draft article, which I thought was really exciting, called A World of Their Own Vietnamese Students as Agents of Global Socialism in the 1970s Warsaw and Krakow. And in that text, you draw upon young Vietnamese men who moved on to the global transnational terrain of socialist education, and as well in looking at Vietnam and the presence of students being a constant part of Polish situation from 1956 until 99. Can you talk a little bit about how gender and the intersections of gender Mm -hmm. and migration played in this rich history of Vietnamese and Polish connections? Yes,
0: I would say that this is the kind of fascinating, um, if you want, decolonial intervention. The potential for decolonial intervention in this research project is there precisely because it kind of shifts the, the sustained attention from West versus the global South, so the relationships between North and South, to kind of the relationships between East and South. So, the kind of in-between zone of Eastern Europe, right? There's this kind of trouble with Eastern Europe that no one historically knew what to do about it. It's not really a colony, but it's also not really Europe. So all these kind of different um, ambivalences that are packed into the, the memory of the region, right? Um, so I only really want to focus on that specific, if you want, marginal, peripheral, yet central privilege of Eastern Europe in connection with, with Vietnam. That's fresh, and I think, and somehow exciting about my research, but at the same time, it also generates this kind of objective need to kind of, You know, of how do we actually apply, how do we use the terminology that emerged in the West, even if it's like black feminism, right, like the notion of intersectionality, how do we apply this in a productive way to this specific context of East-South solidarity? Because like the notion of intersectionality, I think it's absolutely present and I, you know, it's absolutely visible and fundamental to me, but at the same time under late socialism, there was no such thing as race in theory, right? Um, and there was no such thing as gender discrimination. So, and of course, it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It, it was ubiquitous. But the question is, like, what kind of vocabulary to use? How to how to kind of make it more indigenous, if you want? How to kind of translate it into this specific, historically specific context that, at the same time, is productive for us. You know, may allows us to connect these histories with the global histories, right? But at the same time, do not create an epistemic gap between me. The, the, the scholar and the agents that i am analyzing so the vietnamese students who become more and more polish or the polish pedagogues who are socialists and actually do a great job to basically connect and heal the wounds the hidden scars of decolonization you know that that, that these students carry with them how to talk to them about this kind of weird entanglement i think that masculinity played a huge role in expectations of kind of you know, man genius coming back to Vietnam and developing the country, I think that, that played a huge role. But the notion of intersectionality, I just, I'm still struggling with how to make it work in this situation, how to really use it as a kind of analytical context, like what should, you know, what should be brought into light? And one of the axes that I'm really interested in is kind of so-called mixed-rate relationships and this notion of falling in and out of love and how it has a consequence for a political project of global transnational socialism especially since these children remained, and most of them actually, they they are now the backbone or, or of the so-called multicultural society of Poland. And actually the Afro-Polish society that is now, that has been created a few years ago and gains visibility with all the protests happening uh, in Europe and the United States, but also in Poland, they are, most of them are children of uh, Nigerian students, men who had a relationship with Polish women and then for some reason disappeared because they died, they were killed, or because they returned to Nigeria and could never get connected with their families. So there was like a very tangible continuation here.
1: I think you bring up an interesting point. It's not just a question of these political or educational yeah. alliances. Okay but that in the process of people moving around and perhaps Mm -hmm. integrating into different social circles, love, romantic relationships, and potentially children emerge from these transnational dynamics. And even here in Berlin and Germany, there's also a long history of Black or German people being the product of Black and German interracial relationships, but in some cases them being strained, as you point out in the Polish context, where there might be an erasure of that uh, history in the popular imagination, or in some cases, some black folk were forced to migrate. There's such a rich layer of history. Just, just
0: to quickly add on that, because that's it's also another kind of interesting possible avenue. It's just that, you know, without falling too much into this kind of identity politics logic. Um, I mean, what is also kind of hard for me is that these are a specific type of ethnicized minority, right? Because we are Asian. And a lot of this discussion, for example, on people of color and, and the Soviet bloc, on the socials block focuses on um, African students because they um, were very politicized, they organized protests, etc. Um, and then somehow, um, you know, the experience of Asian students uh, somehow... Awkwardly is being sandwiched between um, the history of African students in the Soviet Union and the history of, you know, black people in the West or in the United States. Um, and I think it's, it's it's reproductive, I think, to think to see possible connections to kind of to make them talk to each other, these experiences, and see how how can we add another layer of the experience um, of the, to draw like a more complex and kind of multi-layered. Um, picture, if you want, or story of the experience of people of color in the socialist world that doesn't kind of go beyond the boundary of black and white, you know?
1: You mentioned decolonization. How do you define decolonization? And can you discuss the ways that the debates about decolonizations has played out in Vietnam and Poland, respectively?
0: So decolonization is a it's a unique historical process, right, of radical geopolitical transformation that took place in kind of roughly speaking three decades after the World War II. So from 1947 to 75, and it took place in the Global South mainly. Decolonization could be broadly defined as an overall dismantling of transcontinental empires that resulted in the formation of independent nation states uh, in the Global South. With the fall of the empires, at least in theory, racial hierarchy lost legitimacy as a political ideology and a form of government. Th- that is uh, a rather straightforward and simple answer to your question, because in fact, decolonization meant different things for various people in different places. So it, d- it played out differently depending on the location, right? So that's something we have to keep in mind. Um, so as much as it was about ending colonial rule, decolonization was also about Creating new economic and cultural sovereignty. It's about it was about the creation of new identities and political consciousness. So there was this notion of African socialism, Pan African uh, projects. So in other words, as for instance Jan Yanson, but also Yugen Osterhammel, they pointed out vagueness and ambiguity. I think is the fundamental and inherent notion of decolonization. As I already mentioned before, previously in my other uh, in answering the other question, like my research very much aims to kind of. Um, shift the discussion, not just kind of look at different events that happened in different geographies, but perhaps also unsettle a bit and interrogate the very conditions that we have that define how we think about decolonization. Because oftentimes... Uh, okay, the Vietnam War, the, the first and the 2nd Indochina Inter-China War are very well-known facts. Um, there's an ongoing research on the military dimension of the Vietnam War from the Vietnamese side, which I think it's a fabulous work um, that has to be happen. But at the same time, it does not exhaust, I think, the the, the fullness and the complexity of decolonization and the devastation that it had on the local population. And how the, these traumas, how these, how these kind of problems, if you want, traveled with Migrants and refugees, and kind of suddenly became implanted or became integrated, I mean, to some extent, into the kind of receiving host societies, be it the United States, Australia, or Poland, or the Soviet Union, or Czechoslovakia, or Hungary. So that is my take on decolonization, to just to shift the attention, the discussion from this kind of north-south axis to the more, as I already said, east-south, so Eastern Europe and Vietnam. Um, and in so doing, actually, so think about different categories, like socialism, take seriously socialism, socialist global pedagogy and its kind of involvement in the, the creation of lasting infrastructures of support and the kind of afterlives of decolonization in the societies of Eastern European societies, but also in Vietnam, and how they play out after 1989, 1991, right? And decolonization, unfortunately, is not seen in such ways, neither in Vietnam nor in Poland. In Vietnam, for obvious reasons, decolonization is viewed merely through the prism of the Vietnam War or the state building efforts, which makes sense, because since 1955, Vietnam was very much preoccupied with wartime activities, and then with the possible ways of rebuilding vietnam after the war but again this is just one of among many vietnams there is no one vietnam i think there's a different vietnam in the united states there's a different vietnam in in eastern europe there's a different vietnam in, in western europe there's a different vietnam in australia there's a different vietnam in north vietnam and in south vietnam so these are the things that have to be taken into account when we talk about it the vietnam i am
1: focusing on is the socialist
0: vietnam in relationship with eastern europe particularly with poland and to some extent with hungary as well
1: Thank you so much for pointing out the importance of the global South to second world interactions and countries that might often appear to be or seem to be on the periphery of these global dynamics. It's so important, too, especially in the context in which uh, socialism in the U.S. popular sphere during the Cold War, was demonized and scoting, vilified, yeah. and there are other aspects of it that are now being analyzed, especially with texts like "Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism." Right. Mm-hmm. And it's just so important to point out that there were aspects of state redistribution of wealth, educational facilities, mm-hmm. uh, programs for women to do labor that we could all benefit from and learn from, and in some ways having that practice is part of really doing the work that like the serious work that you're engaged in. I wanted to know as an academic who is Vietnamese origin and from Poland and currently living in Germany, how do you see decoloniality mm-hmm. exercise in academia, if at all? Depends
0: very much on the specific context. And so but what is even decoloniality, right? I think that by some people it's often being used as a replacement for decolonization. But To me, the coloniality is following in Mignolo's own words, right? It's about epistemic reconstruction. So I see it as a way to kind of detach yourself from the structural continuities of colonialities. And in our case, and at the university as scholars, it is about undoing the structures of knowledge production that is in line with the darkest side of modernity. And to me, that inevitably kind of uh, involves blurring the strict boundaries between private and public, between academia and activism between also what is theory, what is practice, if you want. Um, I know it sounds a bit general, but uh, that would be the kind of, for me, the starting point, the most basic, uh, the most broad, and at the same time, a very narrow, if you want, understanding of what decoloniality is. But then the question always is, how do we apply it, right? How do we make it productive and efficient for each context in which there is a need for decoloniality. And to me, it's obvious that we cannot see decolonization anymore only through the narrow lens of, you know, reconstructing facts or military activities. But at the same time, we have to be kind of very careful that we do not end up using it as as a metaphor for everything, right? That taps into the kind of decolonial desires of white and oppressed people. And that's something that Tuck and Young, who work in a completely different context of indigenous studies, but that's what they kind of point out to that. This this term is too often used and kind of unintentionally evoked to tag almost any type of oppression. So we also on the one hand we cannot have a too narrow understanding of decoloniality as simply de- decolonization, right? That kind of ended in 1975. Nor can we kind of stretch it too much, I think, because we might then lose some of the kind of particularities um, of a specific case study. So th- this is like for me what what matters. It's still an open question. How am I going to do this? It's a life project, epistemic reconstruction of being committed to decoloniality, and I think that this will also evolve with me as I uh, as I grow older and you know change my opinions. I guess I think that the biggest intervention is really to basically kind of unsettle a bit this focus on on the north-south and um, exchange kind of traffic of ideas of know-hows of military guns or economic means by kind of looking at this kind of world of their own of people of color who manage to create home in eastern europe what are you reading right now um i'm reading a lot of things i'm actually reading young yamatha taylor from mm-hmm. black life matters to black liberation and i think it's such a great book and I, she, she's such a great public intellectual as well. And this helps me kind of understand what is happening now in the United States. So I recommend it to everyone. So I'm reading, again, Living a Feminist Life by Sarah Ahmed, because it also helps me kind of make sense of what's happening these days, also in Germany and German academia, the, the discussion on of, you know, inclusion, rethinking the canon, et cetera. And I'm also reading The Milkman by Anna, Anna Burns, but that's in the evenings, so just fall asleep.
1: Given that you mentioned this moment, like right now we're seeing social unrest. People are questioning monuments that revere uh, colonialists, Mm -hmm. slave traders, and um, also unsettling the paradigm here in Europe that somehow racism is an American product, but in fact, it is an international problem and it is something that people are feeling, experiencing, and calling into question here in Europe. What have you seen as a sign of actions with respect to uprisings and or pointing to the racism that might be present in the Polish context that brought so much joy but also fear in me that, I mean really
0: inspired a lot of hope in me what is happening in Poland is that a lot of Afro-Polish became visible and, and by Afro-Polish I mean Polish people of African um, background who basically are not just scholars right working on James Baldwin or Franz Fanon but also teenagers and there was one photograph of a Polish girl who whose father is Nigerian. And she kept on protesting in front of the American embassy with a huge sign, don't call me M word. And the M word is like an N word in, in English. Um, and it's a very problematic word. It's very, you know, it's a, it's a very loaded word that I think should be just abandoned. But the Poles somehow very nostalgically cling to it and they take it very personally. And they believe that because Poland did not have overseas, col- overseas colonies, in fact, they were often the victims of the European empires, um, they shouldn't be blamed for that, and it has no negative undertone behind this word because Poles themselves never had slaves. So, so this whole discussion about how language shapes uh, shapes our realities about that there's some kind of structures that go beyond individual intention, right? That somehow that they reproduce themselves through, for instance, language, that this is not innocent, that there was something like hate speech. But that suddenly became a topic in Poland, which is really fascinating. And not only did it become a topic in itself, but it's kind of connected to the experience of Polish people of color, especially like Polish black people, who basically, you know, organized. So, yeah, so basically that was the moment of opportunity for the visibility. It creates a platform and an audience for activists of color in Poland who actually can can for the first time actually enjoy the access in the one of the biggest, you know, media outlets in Poland. And I think it's, it's a historic moment. I hope I wish them all the best. And I just hope that things will change. So another idea is, you know, from the kind of canonical readings that all the kids have to do at school that have really problematic, if not racist, representation of black people. Even that the discussion has started, it's just wonderful in itself, and that has sparked so much joy and hope in me. But at the same time, I'm just really afraid that this is not enough. I'm afraid that there will be that there will be so, so many attacks on these on the activists and on everyone who is not white in Poland. Yeah, so it's a very ambivalent moment, if you want. But it is happening in Poland too, and interestingly, there there is a whole you know network and community of people of color who are activists and who basically are doing this very important, fundamental, tremendous job of translating what's happening in the U.S. into the kind of Polish context and making it work here. And that's, that's beautiful.
1: The Afro-Polish struggle, those are struggles we don't often hear or see represented in mainstream media. Mm-hmm. I wanted to also ask you, given this moment of uncertainty with COVID, pandemic happening, and a restructuring of how society is functioning at this moment, what are some of the acts of joy that you have engaged in in the recent months to counteract this new age of uncertainty?
0: Almost everything that I do with my daughter is, who is very, you know, she's a very energetic outgoing little toddler. It's it's just fun. I mean, she, I just love hanging out with her and uh, discovering our neighborhood, but also Lakes and woods around Berlin, that has brought me so much joy um, recently. But again, that's only possible because we are very lucky to have uh, stable jobs and be able to enjoy these moments with our daughter during the lockdown. Lately, what I really am happy about is just finally I get to meet some of my friends whom I haven't seen, I don't know, weeks. So that that has been great there are these kind of insulated moments of joy the protests that happens in in, in warsaw but also here in berlin and that's, this has filled me with a lot of political hope and i just uh now the question obviously is and the challenge is how we can make it how we can maintain that energy how we can kind of um, make it more tangible and lasting that that is the big task i think
1: but still i think it's a wonderful moment and i hope that it will change Is there anything you want to share in terms of events or books or things that you want
0: the audience to know? we have this Vietnam Beyond Vietnam reading group where we basically read history books, articles, but we also read novels. Um, We listen to Vietnamese music, we watch movies. And in doing so, we try to kind of broaden the notion of who counts as Vietnamese and what is Vietnamese. And I invite everyone to join, or at least be on the mailing list if you're interested in getting to know Vietnam, history of migration, refugees, also like this kind of notion of Asian neoliberalism. these, These are also this kind of societal changes that we are talking about in our reading group.
1: Thank you so much for that information. And um, thank you for joining me today on the Decolonization in Action podcast. Thank
0: you for having me. No, I think it's such a wonderful initiative. It's so important to have such podcasts and to be able to, you know, that you basically like just just like around feminist book, you create a feminist community around podcasts, One can also create a community. Right. And I think it's just so important. and, And I'm very thankful that you are doing this.
1: My name is Edna Bonhomme, and you're listening to the Decolonization in Action podcast, and this episode featured digitally-based and socially distant voices who currently live in Berlin, Germany. This is the last episode of Season 2, and we will have new episodes for Season 3 starting in late July. During this break, I strongly encourage you to listen to the following podcasts that are created by and led by Black women, queer, and gender non-binary people talk table podcast Afrocom podcast tones of melanin podcast love in the time of corona podcast left pocket project podcast queer walk podcasts these podcasts allow the space and give voices to black people black social movements through politics history humor and so much more I would like to express my gratitude to the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science for institutional support. I especially would like to thank Christina Comer, Lisa Onaga, and Daniela Rosner for putting decolonization in action by actively supporting Black lives during a global pandemic. As always, there's a list of references and a bibliography in the show notes. To learn more about the podcast or to find for more information about the people, events, reference, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Deck in Action. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episode on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and various forms of social media. I want to end with two quotes by the Black American writer, Toni Morrison, who once remarked, quote, Black people are victims of an enormous amount of violence. None of those things can take place without the complicity of the people who run the schools and the city, end quote. She also remarked, quote, we die, that may be the meaning of life, but we do language. That may be the measure of our lives, end quote. During this break, I hope we can reflect on the power of words and actions and figure out concrete ways to build a more just and equitable world. Thank you for joining us.